There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. Please, please, please don't hate yourself. I love you too. I don't hate myself for loving you. But I have to tell you, one of the most incredible experiences that I had was you know, deciding last night whether my obligation to you, my listeners, was more important than my obligation to the fan that I am and have returned to watching, although I promised I wasn't going to. I just couldn't help myself. You know, in the finals right now, the Knicks are playing the Heat. And there are only, there's only one team that I love more than the Miami Heat, and that's the New York Knicks. So it's just irresistible for me, right? Meanwhile, I know my responsibility is to watch CNN's town hall with Donald Trump, right? And now, of course, if you've got picture in picture, you can kind of watch both of them, but you can't really concentrate on either one of them if you're watching both of them. And you can flip back and forth. There's certainly enough commercials during an NBA game that I could flip back and forth. But you don't want to miss, you know, that moment when the Donald says something that you want to remember. So I just kept, you know, I just kept asking for clarity. Should I be watching the president or should I be watching the Knicks and the Heat? And I just couldn't come up with an answer. So... I recorded the president and watched the game because I knew that I'm not one of these people who can watch the game after it's taken place because during the entire game, my son Derek is texting me. It's like we watch it together through our phones. So I knew that I would know what was going on. (laughs) And uh, therefore, I just taped the president. And boy, am I glad I did. Because you would want to be able, if, you're, if you didn't see it and you want to watch it, you, you would love the fact that you'll be able to stop it and, and back up sometimes. Because, you know, I've become painfully aware of the fact that whatever your opinion is about Donald Trump, it's probably never going to change. If you're a big supporter like me, then you will always find the best light. And if you don't want him to run, then you will find the worst story, right? And if you're a left-wing lunatic, you are mad at CNN for putting him on. You know, I'm watching AOC and all of these, uh, you know, left-wing people saying, oh, this is outrageous. Uh, We're going to boycott CNN for doing this. You know, they're giving him all this free publicity. No, basically, they're trying to get some ratings, you know. And they did. You know, it was well-watched, well-received. I have no idea who uh, Caitlin Collins is. I have never, I don't think I've ever seen her before, 
But I would say that she's on the uh, precipice of becoming like the number one anchor on CNN because not, you know, everybody else is so embedded in whatever opinions we've been following them, whether it's, uh, you know, Jake Tapper or it's Anderson Cooper or it used to be, you know, Don Lamont and Chris Cuomo. We like know exactly how much they hated Trump. But I don't think people like me had any clue how much Caitlin Collins hated him. She made that quite clear, though, last night, which is fascinating. But, you know, that'll just earn her a primetime show, in my opinion. But people got through to me last night on text messages and this morning on all my emails asking me how I was going to dissect this. And I can tell you, it was riveting. It was a display of what a warrior spirit looks like. It was classic Donald Trump. And even the fact that he chose to do this CNN town hall tells me that we are in for quite a ride. You know, fasten your seatbelts. Donald Trump is going to get the nomination and Donald Trump is going to run for the presidency. And in my opinion, Donald Trump's going to win. But I'm pretty sure now, after having watched that, that if I were the people advising uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, and now obviously I'm never going to be one of those people because I've taken a pretty public position that I want him to finish out his term as governor. But if I were one of the people advising him and had watched that last night, that town hall meeting, I would say, do not ruin your political future by running now. Because he's armed for bear. Donald Trump is not backing down on anything, including election integrity, nothing. He's not backing down. He's coming full-throated. And you don't want to be the person taking the bulk of his rage. You just don't. I think it was on Brian Kilmeade's show as I was driving up here, I'm in the studio in Palm Beach, always a fun thing for me, not that I want to do it every day, but it's fun when I can do it. And I'm riding up here and I heard either Brian Kilmeade or his guest, and they were talking about how it would probably be a pretty smart idea for the governor of Florida to keep his powder dry and you know, kind of fall on the sword. I know his donors don't want to hear this, but uh, kind of fall on the sword and say something along the lines of, uh, you know, I'm going to finish governing Florida and one day I will run for the presidency. And then I would place a call to Donald Trump and I would say, you know, put me on your ticket because we can't lose. You know, if it's a Trump, the Santa's ticket, I already have the hat. I've had the hat since last year. So if it's a Trump-DeSantis ticket, the Republican Party wins the election. Period. End of story. So that would be my move if I was Ron, right? And apparently he can still stay governor until the election, so he really doesn't lose anything. And then if Donald Trump does tap him to be the vice president, he'll serve four years, during which time... A lot of great things will happen, and then he'll be positioned perfectly to run for the presidency, and that would give him not four, not eight, but 12 years 
at the helm of this nation. Not to mention he can always convince himself that Donald Trump's old, like, uh, you know, Joe Biden's old. And whoever is the vice president in one of those administrations stands a, you know, a pretty moderate chance of having to assume office, right? I mean, it's possible. Not to mention, in the case of Donald Trump, you know, there are often, I worry about attempts to assassinate him. I don't think that's, uh, you know, so out of the question. Nobody's ever been hated as badly as him. I mean, it makes Richard Nixon look like a, a pinup. You know, so, so if I were, you know, Governor DeSantis, I would seriously think I could win it all. I could, you know, hit the lottery right now. Of course, the people in his ear are telling him, oh, no, it's now or never. You know, they're bringing in this flood of illegal immigrants across the border and it's going to get worse at midnight. And uh, they're all going to vote for Democrats. First and foremost, that's not true. They're not all going to vote for Democrats. And actually, they're not all supposed to be able to vote. But that's another story. You know, we're not allowed to question election integrity, right? But I, I watch the desperate measures that the left has to go to just to deal with Donald Trump. I mean, CNN, Chris Licht had to put him on a station that has spent years uh, telling false stories about him. And then they are literally, they bring him into a friendly environment in New Hampshire, a primary state, right? And the audience is filled with local Republicans and maybe a few undecided voters. At least they were pretending they were undecided. I don't think that's true. And, uh, you know, it did not turn into the disaster, I think, that Chris Lick might have been hoping it would, or maybe all the left was hoping it would. Instead, it showed the, the followers of Donald Trump and even the people who doubt Donald Trump, it showed us that he is ready to take on this challenge. And after watching, you know, Joe Biden wander around podiums and, you know, disappear and, and just say inappropriate things and really uh, open the borders wide. I think that um, what you saw last night would be very, very instrumental in turning some naysayers into supporters. Just my, uh, my take on it. I think that as the event got underway last night, he, t he took off in his signature campaign style, right? He got laughter. He got applause. Got a little tense for a while when uh, the anchor challenged some of his claims. They got into a little heated discussion. By the way, what is it that allows these left-wing anchors to be completely disrespectful of a man who was the president of the United States and is now the presumptive nominee, right? Like... You, you at least have to show a modicum of respect for the man, don't you? You don't have to support him. You don't have to not ask hard questions, but you do have to show some respect. She didn't show any. They never do. And that just endears him even more to the people who were going to support him to begin with. So I just, you know, I, I thought it was a tour de force. I thought he um, he acquitted himself Anybody had any doubts that he would just doesn't know him. You know, I, I have studied Donald Trump for years and I knew that given an opportunity, even on CNN, he was going to remain unapologetic. He was unwavering. 
um, from abortion to border security to energy policy to criticizing Joe Biden to criticizing the Department of Justice and gun rights and the debt ceiling and even the proposal that he made to bring together Putin and Zelensky and end the violence. You know, if you're sitting in the middle somewhere, that sounded like a pretty good idea to you. Anyway, I thought he did great. And, uh, and I think that uh, CNN, you know, deserves a, a, a big round of applause for al- allowing that to happen. And maybe now Fox will be a little more circumspect about how they treat their anchors. Anyway, don't forget, go to the website, 850WFTL, to see about our upcoming contests or go to your app. If you have it on your phone, 850WFTL app, you can register to win there as well. I'm going to take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, I'm going to be talking with Chris Jemlensky from Numbers USA. Stay right where you are. All right. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. And uh, welcome back. As promised, I have Chris Chmielinski on the line from Numbers USA. He's the VP and Deputy Director. And we're going to be talking about some of these uh, great immigration bills, including the one at Cong- in Congress, as well as the ones that have passed here in the state of Florida. But, Chris, how could I not uh, you know, ask you if you're watching what's happening on our southern border right now? <laughs> How can you not? Right. Um, you know, it's it's like finally, actually, the uh, a news network other than Fox News is actually covering what's happening down there. So yeah. um, I'm a bit startled by it. But yeah, it's it's one of those things. I hope that I hope that every American is watching it and 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 hopefully coming to a similar conclusion that that I am. Right. That, that this is outrageous and that it has nothing to do with what's good for America. But again. Behind the scenes, a lot of governors, particularly my governor, Ron, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis, have been putting bills in place that are actually very effective, whether it's E-Verify or something else, and kind of emboldening Congress. Tell us what's going on there today. Yeah, well, well we've, we've been thrilled with a, with a law that, that Florida, the state legislature, passed down there that includes um, some things that will address identity fraud with illegal aliens and also requires the verify for the larger employers in the state. Um, but the, the House is working on its own bill right now, and, and we finally, we, we think we're, we're almost at the finish line. The vote is scheduled in a few hours. They're actually debating the bill right now on the House floor in, in D.C., and, and, and this not only addresses the, the current border surge and past border surges that we've seen, but I think it'll go a long way in stopping future border surges. And it also includes some interior enforcement. It includes mandatory E-Verify, similar to the law that was recently passed in, in Florida. And it also makes uh, overstaying a visa a felony. So these are all important things that I think will go a long way into really reducing future illegal immigration. Looks like it's going to pass in the House, but uh, it has a tougher road in the Senate. 
It sure does. But I'll tell you one thing that became uh, very clear to me in the last 48 hours. Uh, In 2016, Donald Trump rode the immigration issue to the White House. Um, I said it then and I'm saying it now. It is still one of the most important issues to the American people. And I can anticipate that it's going to become a major election uh, you know, issue again in 2024. Do you see that? Yeah, yeah, I do. You know, what? Uh, part of the reason why it, it was so successful as an issue for, for, for Trump in 2016 was because we had just experienced a border surge in 2014 and 2015. Not only along our southern border, but everybody saw the images that were coming from Europe with the huge, the huge Middle Eastern refugee crisis as people were entering the European Union and taking advantage of, of, of the porous borders that exist between countries in Europe. Uh, you know, so people saw that they were frustrated by it. They didn't want it to happen here, and 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 so they bought into Trump's message. You know, here you have history repeating itself except it's a whole lot worse. I mean, some of the worst months during the Obama administration, we saw maybe 80 to 100,000 apprehensions at the southern border. We're seeing well over 125,000 now for for 24, 25 consecutive months under the Biden administration. And it is going to explode with Title 42 ending right now. So yeah, I, I think it's just going to continue. The, the frustration with the American people is just going to continue to grow. And I think it's going to be a, a, a pretty significant campaign issue come next year. Really? And not just in like border states and not just in red states, right. because I'm looking at, you know, uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot on her way out of Chicago. She's uh, saying we can't afford to, to house all these immigrants, even though they're a sanctuary city. The same with Mayor Adams in New York. All, Governor, Governor Newsom in California, all of a sudden, all these benevolent, you know, uh, sanctuary cities and states are having second thoughts about it. And so are the voters. Yeah, well, for, you know, for the longest time we've been hearing, oh, there's 11 million illegal aliens living in the United States. And, and you've seen these sanctuary cities, sanctuary states, sanctuary jurisdictions popping up all over the place, New York. Chicago being two of them, San Francisco, obviously, most of the cities along the West Coast, um, a number of other northeastern cities. So you've seen these cities declare sanctuary policies, but, you know, you really didn't feel the significant impacts of, of illegal immigration, even with a population of around, you know, 10 to 20 million people living here illegally. But now we're talking about potentially over the four years that Biden is in office, doubling that number. And what are they doing? They're all going to sanctuary cities because those are the cities, you know, they go into Florida. Florida's going to enforce the law and they're not going to allow them to stay with the exception of a few pockets around the state that also have sanctuary protections. But they're going to go to these safe havens and, and these cities are becoming overwhelmed and they can't handle it. Yeah. Well, and I can tell you, you know, um, Roy Beck and I over the years have talked about how when I first got involved in this debate, I was a pretty moderate kind of person, and my big argument was environmental. I said, does anybody watching and seeing how you're going to have areas of the country inundated with a population they can't manage, the water is going to be affected, schools, hospitals, all these things will be adversely affected, and people you know, called me a conspiracy nut. Uh, now, you know, the same people that used to stand in allegiance with me crying about the environment, are the people supporting unbridled illegal immigration? You can't make this stuff up. 
Yeah, yeah. And just think about what is happening along the southern border right now. I mean, many, many of the routes that that these caravans are taking, crossing the border illegally, they're coming through our national parks, they're coming through our national preserve that's down along the border because those are areas that Border Patrol can't necessarily patrol. And what are they doing? They're leaving piles of trash on their way through these sensitive environmental areas. So uh, not just along the border regions, but then these places that they're moving to. You know, we're talking about adding three to four million people over just the last couple of years to our population, in addition to the already historically high legal immigration levels that we have of about 1.1 to 1.2 million a year. And now we're anticipating another five to 10 million coming across illegally now that Title 42 is being lifted over the next couple of years if things don't change along the border. That's a lot of people thinking about, we're, we're, we're talking about adding entire states Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of population to the United States. And, and from an economic resource perspective, we just can't support that. I know. And I love when I get into the debates and over the years we all, we all have about how, oh, you know, amnesty is very expensive and, you know, or, or it's uh, less expensive than enforcement. And that's just not true, is it? No, it's not. Because what we find is that once they're able to legally start taking federal benefits, they tend to be they tend to be a drain on taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Um, be, and, and the reason for that is pretty simple when you think about it. It's that most of the people who are crossing the border illegally have probably at most a high school education. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going to take more of your wage earning jobs that are paying 10 to $20 an hour somewhere in that ballpark. Some of them may end up uh, getting some construction jobs or things like that that may pay up upwards of like $30,000 an hour, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, they're still below that line. You know, the Heritage Foundation years ago, they did a pretty comprehensive study. They took everything into account. They took driver's license, fees that you pay towards driver's licenses, car taxes, uh, property tax that's passed through, rentals. They took all of that into consideration to think about how much uh, people are paying into the system and then how much they're pulling out of the system. They basically determined that a family needs to have an income of about $82,000 a year. That's probably higher now with recent inflation, but it needed to be somewhere around $80,000 a year for them just to break even on the amount of taxes that they pay in. And many of these people crossing the border illegally aren't going to be anywhere near that, which means they're a drain. Right. And, and you know, I, I've, you and I have uh, battled this for so long when I hear people say, well, if we don't allow more laborers into this country, we're not going to have enough money to pay Social Security to the generations mm-hmm. like mine who are now yeah. in that age bracket. And, you know, that that is not the solution to our Social Security crisis, I don't believe. No. And, yeah, you got to think about this. You're talking about two lower wage earners coming in to support the Social Security for a higher wage earner's uh, retirement. Um, But what's going to happen when those two low-wage earners get to retirement age? Now you're going to have two people that you have to support. And and that's the problem with the way that Social Security is set up. So if we're going to bring in people, we need to bring in people who are extraordinarily talented, uh, can can, can truly contribute to our economy, and are going to probably command a salary of, you know, maybe close to six figures, if not above and beyond. That's, if if you're going to talk about how immigration can have an impact on Social Security, that's how you do it. You don't bring in somebody who's going to make $15 an hour 
you know, waiting tables at a local restaurant. Right. And, and you know, that's it's amazing to me that we still have these same arguments. They just get recycled every couple of years. Right. Um, and and the, the answer never changes. You know, the, the dilemma never changes. But listen, we just keep fighting the good fight. I mean, we're going to need to fight harder than ever. Um, when I look up at the television screen and I see this wave of human beings coming across, and nobody, not at Numbers USA, not anybody who listens to this program, isn't sympathetic to people who are simply trying to gain access to a better life for themselves and their families. However, there's a, there's a procedure that has to be in place or we will be overwhelmed. It, it, it just looks like, a, it looks like an invasion at the southern border. Yeah, it, it is. And, and, and I know, the, the, you know, our natural reaction as Americans is that we want to help these folks. So yeah. Remember, there's there's five billion people in the world who all want to move to the United States. Yeah, we can't have all five billion of them coming here. So we can help them a whole lot more if we can go to their countries and help them in their home countries rather than having them all come here. Absolutely. Uh, visit the website. You can get lots of information, the numbers, and uh, you know, follow what's happening at the border right there at numbersusa.org. Um, read these articles. Chris, thanks again. Uh, always good to talk to you, and uh, I'll, I'm sure I'll see you soon. Good talking to you, too. Thanks. All right. Take care. All right. We got to take a break right now, and I did want to let you know that it's Mental Health Awareness Month, and I have never seen the uh, level of psych medicines being given to people that we've seen in the last like 10 years. And either there's a lot more of a mental health crisis than we ever suspected, or they are dispensing these drugs pretty willy-nilly. I'm not sure. What, what I think about that. But I'm going to be talking about some issues that have to do with mental health for the next couple of weeks. I have a guest on at 1245, the author of a book called Incurable Hope, a memoir and survival guide for coping with a loved one's addiction. And, you know, we're going to take a look at the pain and suffering that mentally ill and addicted people bring not just to their own lives, but to the lives of those who love them and their communities in general. So you won't want to miss that. That's at 1245. But I'm coming back. I got a lot more to say about Donald Trump last night on CNN and a lot more to say about the border. Stay right where you are. All right, and uh, welcome back. So anyway, I'm just going to kind of wrap up how I felt. You know, I, I, I saw some emails this morning. They were predictable. I knew they were going to come from people who were going to tell me, oh, you know, Donald Trump, uh, he's, he only speaks to the people who are blind, uh, you know, that, that would support him no matter what. I got to tell you, my impression from last night was that he actually is pretty crafty when you think about it. People who watch CNN are not the normal Donald Trump voters. Now, you may have had Republicans sitting in that audience, and Republicans definitely tuned in to CNN, something like, like I didn't even know what, what channel it was on the television. I don't watch a lot of television anyway, but I had no idea what channel CNN was because I don't watch it, right? But I found it. You know, I spoke into my remote, which I just learned how to do pressed the little microphone button and said, CNN, town hall, Donald Trump. 
And it showed me that it was, I think, 407. I don't even know what number it was, but I clicked on it. And I got to tell you, CNN and Donald Trump did a genius move last night. First and foremost, this network has been struggling in its ratings. And last night, it saw a surge. Now, Trump will tell you, and I will too, that the best rating CNN ever had was during the Trump years, when the people who hate Trump would watch to see Trump get beat up and the lies be told and retold and the Russia collusion and the this and the that. You know, entire careers were built on hating Donald Trump. So last night, that audience was exposed to Donald Trump. Now, if they're real true haters or if they're never Trumpers like some of my friends have become, well, then it didn't do anything to persuade them that Donald Trump can win the election. You know, they're, they're content. And I love when people tell me, oh, the Democrats hope that Trump gets the uh, nomination because uh, Joe Biden will beat him. Well, according to every poll I'm looking at, Joe Biden can, couldn't beat a, fla- a flea. And he certainly can't beat Donald Trump. I mean, just think about this for a second. Donald Trump runs on his record. You can't deny his record. You can hate him, but you can't deny his record. Okay? Joe Biden runs on his record. You could love him, but you can't deny his record. One is a record of success and one is a record of failure. So, you know, on what planet do you have to live? How badly do you have to not like Donald Trump to think that he wouldn't win in a race against Joe Biden? I don't care how much mobilization you think you're going to do. You're going to have to cheat. And this time around, I don't think that Donald Trump is going to tolerate the cheating. I think he's going to make sure that there are some things in place that will prevent the level of uh, nonsense that went on in 2020. And believe me, whether or not on that in that election, there was fraud is irrelevant. It was the things leading up to that election, all the rule changes, all this using COVID as a reason to have, you know, ballot harvesting and all this other garbage and, and multiple days of voting. That stuff is not going to, they're not going to get away with that this time. They may come up with some new plan. I don't know. You know, they're pretty crafty. I wouldn't put it past them. They're working on it. But watching this last night, I'm going to just read from something my friend Alan Bergstein wrote. He always writes brilliant pieces, but this one really was uh, superb, and I'm going to share it. I I didn't ask Alan's permission, but I know he would give it to me. He said, tonight's CNN New Hampshire town hall featuring a solo Donald Trump with Caitlin Collins playing the role of a hostile, belligerent, inquisitor, interrogator— and sometimes moderator, was like a cannon round exploding in the gun barrel. A disaster for CNN. It was planned as a smear against the guy the network despises. The mental midgets running the channel thought Cutie Pie Collins would tear the guy apart with Trump all worn out, on the defensive, being in the trenches with DeSantis, and most recently the rigged court decision that found him guilty of sexual assault in New York City. Wrong. He was as tough as nails, combative, and he wiped out Caitlin by walking all over her intrusions into his slick, comprehensive responses to the questions offered strangely by only Republicans. It was a win-win for Trump and an embarrassment for the heavy left-leaning channel. 
It gave him a much-needed opportunity to express himself against all the charges that have been tossed against him over the years. Never has CNN offered his side of any story that was concocted to destroy him. And surely many far lefties tuned in expressly to watch him crumble and go off the wall in tirades stirred up by the rude, ungracious, openly disrespectful Collins learned the truth from the horse's mouth. Trumped, washed over her like high tide, demolishing a sandcastle at water's edge. It was she who crumbled. We've never seen Trump so calm, cool, and collected as he explained his points of views on most topics. He dominated. To the Republicans tuned in, he offered them an evening of reasons why he should be their nominee next year. To Democrat viewers, he educated them to understand that CNN has never honestly reported his side of any situation. He surgically exposed the network's lies, fake news, and insincerity. In fact, look for his polling numbers to rise dramatically by Thursday morning. It was that much of a success for Trump. This would be a Perfectly. Now, this is where I got the idea. So Alan gets the credit. This would be perfectly gracious opportunity for DeSantis to pull out of the race. Let him spend the next four years traveling around the world and country, showing his face and winning over the nation's voters with his knowledge of issues and his strengths. And in this period, gaining the respect and endorsement to run in 2028 of the sitting President Trump. In short, it was a great evening. I couldn't agree more and and so carefully um, dissected for those of you who didn't get to see it. The only difference I had with Alan was I'd like to see DeSantis as the VP. I've I've said that from day one. And I think it's uh, I, I don't think there is any chance of that not being like one of the winningest tickets ever. I mean, a landslide ticket. But, you know, listen, got some emotional and egotistical men in both uh, Ron DeSantis and and Donald Trump. So while it might be the best idea of all, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it has any chance, any chance at all of flying. Um, But that's okay because, you know, I'm paid to come up with novel ideas, not with the same ideas that you're going to hear on every other channel. Because if I, you know, listen, you can listen yourself if you want to hear uh, other opinions. And, and again, I spoke yesterday about this unbelievable disconnect between the people of America and the media. And it just keeps getting worse. You know, I listen to young people, and by young, I mean anybody younger than me. But, you know, there's a whole lost generation somewhere between the, you know, the, the uh, early adulthood and my children's generation that nobody talks about and nobody talks to them. But I'm fortunate that I get to hear their concerns. And the, the media, the American media, really doesn't address them at all, doesn't seem to understand how tough things are for them and how all they hear is bad news. You know, oh, you guys are never going to be able and there's, uh, you know, there's a limit to the, the, the grace and the mercy. No, there isn't. And they're going to be in control. And my only hope is that they really decide that they want to change things and not allow this to continue. 
Now, I'm not one of these people who thinks we can all sing kumbaya and hold hands and the Democrats and the Republicans are going to be happy uh, forever. No, no, no. I want to, um, you know, two different sides. I want a battle for the soul of America to play out, but I need it to be relevant. I need it to be meaningful to the people who it's going to affect more than me. I'm on my way out of here. You know, um, most of my listeners, we've seen our best days, right? But there are generations that deserve a good chance at having the American dream. And right now we have politicians telling them there's no chance and we need somebody who can inspire them and lead them. I don't know if it's RFK. I don't know who it is, but whoever it may be, it is time for them to emerge um, and that will be, uh, you know, that will be happening in short order. And by the way, you know, I was uh, talking about the media and I was looking at some of the salaries these media figures make. It's ridiculous. Ridiculous. You know, Tucker Carlson was making $25 million. What? I mean, not for nothing. He was definitely one of my favorite, but uh, $25 million and a teacher makes 13000 There's no way that can make sense to you. All right. Um, We're going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I'm going to be talking with Lisa Genosa, the author of a new book, a very interesting book. I really, I was a riveting book, actually. Uh, Coming up at one o'clock is Dan Bongino. At four o'clock, Ben Shapiro. At five o'clock, Matt Walsh. And then, of course, the WPTV local news. And tomorrow morning, we start it all over again with the one and only Jen and Bill on the South Florida Morning Report. But I have a segment left, and it's going to be a doozy, so stay right where you are. All right, and welcome back. As I told you, this is Mental Health Awareness Month, and I've been seeking out guests that I think have an important message to share with us. One of those guests is Lisa Genosa. She's a PA, and more importantly, because her medical credentials are intact, but more importantly, she's the mom of a child who struggled with addiction and mental illness. And she's written a beautiful book, Incurable Hope, a memoir and survival guide for coping with a loved one's addiction. So I invited Lisa on today. How are you doing, Lisa? I'm doing very well today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, some days are better than others, right? I mean, I have, uh, I have enough experience with the subject that we're talking about to know that. As a matter of fact, I sit on the board of an organization called the South Florida Wellness Network, which deals with mental health issues and addiction, because the intersection is pretty, it's not rare at all. It's pretty consistently um, what you find. Tell us a little bit about your uh, your journey. Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad to hear you're on those boards because it's just, it's just so critical that, you know, people are advocating and, and staying involved. Um, my journey has been tough. It's, we've been in the trenches for about 15 years with our son, uh, and I, I, even as a medical professional, came in very blind and, and didn't know what I was doing mm-hmm. and made a thousand mistakes. And so, you know, um, we've been on this, this path of recovery for, really for the entire family. Um, and we're in a much better place today. Uh, my son's doing well. We're, we're all, you know, doing well. Like you said, it's a day-to-day experience for sure. Not every day is, is perfect. Not every day is great, but that's, that's okay. You, you learn a heck of a lot of lessons along the way. Um, and that's where we are now and really trying to share, you know, with others how to get through this with decoding, you know, the language of addiction, um, 
the trials, the mistakes, avoiding those so that you don't go through, you know, decades of trauma and challenges that, you, you know, you can find out things ahead of time so you can get a little bit ahead of the game because it is, it is a, it's a long haul. It's a long process. It is, and I, I can tell you one of the things that really concerns me after having, you know, been involved in the recovery community for decades is that, you know, it, it is the, the current drugs that are out there on the street are not uh, the same as were out there in the 60s and 70s. These are, you know, the fentanyl and the trank. These drugs are killing young people who don't have any idea what they're taking. And it's a very unforgiving environment right now. So for a young person who is coming of age during this period of time, it is a minefield, and they're stepping on these mines every single day. Right, right at early, in the stages of early uh, uh, brain development is mm-hmm. when, you know, they're getting involved in these things, and, and it's, it's really just changing the, the course of their lives. Mm-hmm. And um, these drugs, these these, you know, like you said, just incredibly powerful um, drugs that are available today really rewire the brain circuitry. And unfortunately, um, that sets up a lot of people for, you know, a, a, a long time of struggle. And, and many people, too many people today just aren't making it. They aren't, they aren't getting through it. Even in my small, small town, uh, one of the officers told me they had seven overdoses in one week. And I'm talking tiny little town Mm -hmm. and it's just, we just hear these stories on a regular basis and it's because these, these, uh, the access to these drugs and what these young people are getting a hold of is, is just, it's catastrophic. It is. And, and, and we just don't do a good job at educating the family. I mean, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. You know, one thing I've noticed, I'm, I'm, my children are in their 40s, so you know I, I have a whole different perspective on th- what was and what is and what is to come. But I will tell you this, that one of the things that I notice is we are giving more and more medications to young people because we're spotting some of these disorders, whether it's ADD or it's, uh, you know, they're on the spectrum, and we are medicating them, but doctors are medicating them. And I'm unclear as to whether or not some of that medication really doesn't set them up for drug addiction later on. Because if you are, you know, if you're challenging the serotonin uptake in a young person when their brains are forming, wouldn't they be seeking, you know, that same feeling uh, no matter how they come upon it? Oh, that's a great, that's a great uh, uh, concept and, and something to really be examining for sure. Mm-hmm. I agree. I'm, I'm a, a very, very, very judicious um, prescriber mm-hmm. because of that reason. I you know, carefully make those choices and do it without, um, you know, as a physician assistant, I'm still under the, you know, the, the guidance of a physician, but I also reach out to the mental health um, individuals because, you know, I'm not going to make that decision um, very isolated. Mm-hmm. And I do agree, um, it really has to be more examined. But I do think there are, you, you talked about, started talking about educating the families. I think there are ways to really be able to do that, educating the families with um, more effective communication for their, their young people. With There's a method called the craft method. And I, I do feel like that is something that is very, very effective in dealing in dealing with young people with addiction disorders or mental health. It really does help 
present sort of, you know, worsening situation. But also um, educating, um, you know, I'm a fan of, of crisis intervention training, mental health training, just expanding that training in BLET or basic law enforcement training um, or outside of that. And I've, I've actually assisted on some of that. And then also even in medical school and PA school and nurse practitioner school, things like that, there are ways that we can educate, do, more, do better at educating at those levels so that people that are going into the profession of medicine or into the profession of law can have, you know, really better ammunition to, to be able to deal with these situations. Right. I think that is just so critical, and some of that education has been lacking, and it's, it, it's part of what I've personally been trying to do to change. Yeah. Well, my daughter, my, my oldest child, is a neuropsychiatrist with a specialization in uh, you know, substance abuse and no mystery there. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing field and it is expanding. The book is wonderful, Incurable Hope, a memoir and survival guide for coping with a loved one's addiction. I definitely recommend, especially if you – I can't think of anybody who doesn't have a member of their family who's dealing with this. Um, get the book. It's available on, uh, I guess, Amazon and all the usual places, right, Lisa? Absolutely. It sure is. Um, and, yeah, and I always tell people, because so many people reach out and say, you know, I, I have a friend, I know a family, please get it for them. Yeah. It, has, it is loaded with resources, and hopefully it'll help someone else. So if you know someone, reach out to them and, and, and share. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on today, and, and continued success and good luck. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You have a wonderful day. You too. Well, that does it for me. I thank you for your time this time. Until next time, my plan is to be back here tomorrow at noon, if it be his will and he delays his coming. What lies behind us and what lies ahead of us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So wherever you are, just be yourself. Everybody else is taken. And then may God bless you. And may God bless the United States of America. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.